Justin. You're back. Hey, hello. Justin, how are you? I'm I'm okay, I'm good. Oh, I guess the meeting's over. <laughs> the meeting is uh dwindled down to one <laughs> and then now it's back up to two but then uh, uh chris may join us oh and maybe mike in chicago remember mike in chicago yeah oh we did he have a beard like a sheep yeah <laughs> yeah i really liked his beard it looked so friendly <laughs> <laughs> That was a good uh, conversation we had today. Yeah, yeah, it was good. So mm -hmm. my yeah, my internet connection failed. I thought it might be my hub, but um, whatever oh. it was, it's fixed now. But uh, uh, and you fixed it? Well, um, I thought it was my hub, so I ran like diagnostics. But I think in the end, it was probably just it's the weekend, so maybe they were like fixing something locally. Or, ah, it. Yeah. Yeah, do you have do you use a router and you have to pay so, so much a month? Yeah, I have to pay a certain amount. Uh, I, I have actually good quality connection because I had to teach online. But now and then, you know, the, the the company does some work with their big cables or something. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Are they uh, uh, renovating or, or increasing their, I have no their bandwidth maybe? <laughs> Uh, maybe Are you going to 5G? We'd be lucky. <laughs> wow what would 5g be like i think i i think my router can do 5g actually you can select either 2g or 5g i have it on two i mean but... oh, oh i mean well yeah there's a 2g and 5g but 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 there's another kind of 5g that involves like, like 20 times more bandwidth or speed Right, it, right. It requires I've, new equipment and new phones. <laughs> I've heard a lot of resistance to that, but I've not. Yes. I've not heard that the resistance is on the basis of any scientific evidence. <laughs> it seems yeah, more like a conspiracy. It seems so. Fears. Yeah. I Our haven't fears. looked into it deeply, but that's that's the appearance it gives, isn't it? Mm. <laughs> the, the Chinese seem to be on it, and so. So if the U.S. doesn't get on it, then the, then the Chinese will win that market. <laughs> That's true. Uh, maybe they already have. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and yes, uh, yes. When you went, uh, when you uh, <coughs> went out, then then Luis uh, said, "Oh, I I gotta get with this guy. What's his uh, phone number?" And I said, "Well, you can find him on Facebook." Oh yeah, and yeah. Good idea. Yeah, yeah, he's like a cool guy. And spelled your middle name, Shen Yu. Yeah. For him. I, I didn't want to mention at the time, but there were a couple of things he said about Buddhism that I think he may have misunderstood. But he, in general, yeah, he's a really good guy and great understanding. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Yeah, he, he, he has a. His uh, his uh, vocabulary or way of saying uh, of expressing Buddhism that might be uh, might be not ex not exactly what what taught and I don't know. Well, well, he mostly studied 
the Buddhism uh, of Theravada because there's a yeah a Thai Buddhist temple in in an an hour and a, or two south of of where I live and where he lives. So so when he was uh, separated from his wife, he had more time. Oh uh, right. So he he would uh, tr uh, drive a long distance to get to the Thai Buddhist temple. It's a uh, it's Florida what Damaram or something like that. Right, right. And I've been to it too, and it's it's very interesting. And they have cool. uh, Buddhist monks there that that are supported, maybe a handful. <laughs> and I tried to do a, a a retreat there that was supposed to be a week long, kind of like a vipassana kind of, but they don't Great. call it that. It was just a retreat, <coughs> and but I I couldn't stay uh but but a night and. And, and in the morning they 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 gave us a breakfast and the uh, I remember there were some young monks and and then they said uh any questions and, and I asked them uh, uh how do they uh overcome their their sexual urges and they kind of laugh <laughs> and then <laughs> they kind of answer, like they take uh, cold showers and stuff like that <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. yeah that was years ago like uh yeah I've known Luis Wow, maybe since two thousand seven or so. Oh, nice! Yeah, he seems like a really, really <laughs> good uh, guy and very when he was good uh, when I found him, I actually found him in a in a like a health spa, a wellness spa, oh, right, and right. he was uh, he was allowed to teach like a meditation class there. Oh, so he tried teaching us some meditation and maybe some. Like to give a, a a Dharma talk, and I remember he gave a, like a like a, a meditation on on uh, maybe it's called Satipatthana or something like that. That right, right. breathing meditation. Uh, Anapanasati, <laughs> maybe. Yeah, maybe that. My, my Anapanasati. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe that's what it was. And I recorded it and put it on YouTube. And oh, so cool. I got since uh, uh since uh. 2008 or so I, I started trying to record okay I'm going to record him giving classes and stuff and maybe nice. create a YouTube channel on Buddhism oh nice and, and so so I started that and I still have cool. it and so so yeah I could send you a link and you can see him teach, uh, teaching a few classes that are pretty interesting that that he has his own style and cool. like on the Four Noble Truths and and the Eightfold Path one of them is called uh, uh path, it, very important. It's it's, uh, it's the grasping idiots because it, <laughs> in, in reference to the it's the economy idiots or whatever it's the economy stupid he's saying it's the grasping idiots and so but, uh, <laughs> maybe that didn't go over well but but he talked about, no no that sounds like about, a great term uh, uh, i immediately liked it as soon as you said that term grasping <laughs> idiots like, yes uh, i understand okay. So that's a YouTube video I can send you a link of, and it's pretty good the way he presents uh, Buddhism. Nice talking for, in person for the too. lay people. <laughs> that, I, you know. One one thing he brought up that I would disagree with was um, about Nirvana and what that is. Yes, um, I was going to ask a question. What is Nirvana? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, well, the way I see it is that. Um, or in, in the Buddhist language, nibbana. Um, in well, let's just call it enlightenment. Um, mm. And 
I think that this is fairly often misunderstood. Um, and, well, for example, some people would think, um, especially if they're influenced by someone like Thich Nhat Hanh, who's a great mindfulness teacher, um, but they may take his conclusion, which is basically that being enlightened is just being mindful all the time. So if you're mindful all the time, you're enlightened. Mm. Um, and the Buddha didn't only indirectly refute that. He directly refuted that. There's even like some a sutta where <coughs> one of the monks, he was humming him to himself some kind of verse, like, I can't remember how it goes, something like, mindfulness, mindfulness, oh, how cool, how great um, mindfulness is all we need, or something like this. And the Buddha was like, yeah, I love like everything except like the last line, um, because it's not all that we need. Um, and on the Eightfold Path, the Noble Eightfold Path, mindfulness is the seventh step not the eighth step, it is a sequential path. Um, and um, so all these training steps, right livelihood and right speech and all these different things are <clears throat> in the context of this path. It's not general morality. For general morality, that's great. It's very, very useful. So if you're just trying to be generally moral, follow as much of the path as you can. But the path itself, is, um, is not a mere teaching on morality. It's a teaching on how to become enlightened. And it's all headed towards the last step. The Buddha specifically said it's sequential. And the last step is samma samadhi, right, <clears throat> right concentration, which is actually very deep states of absorbed um, uh, meditation. Um, which is maybe to, we don't need to go into exactly what that is right now. <coughs> but um, yeah, so to step, stop at the seventh step, which is merely a preliminary to the eighth, is, is kind of absurd. Um, and just being, you know, you could take different interpretations of mindfulness, but I think a lot of people might just think it means like being aware. Let's say if you're just in, aware of what's going on. That doesn't mean that you're not free from strong habitual patterns that make you uh, do harmful actions or that obscure your understanding, distort your perception. Um, you can still be a burglar, for example, can be in a heightened state of mindfulness. It doesn't mean they're enlightened. They're just really paying attention because they don't want to get caught. Yeah, um, but what enlightenment is, one of the key sort of definitions is the elimination of dukkha, uh, what's normally translated as suffering, but I think is rather specifically referring to negative emotional affect. So uh, if all negative emotional affect is um, eliminated, then that may be enlightenment. There may be some other qualifications too, but at a bare minimum, you know, if you're, if you're still getting emotionally upset, you're not enlightened, according to the Buddha anyway. 
Wonder what's wonder what's that like? Like I heard enlightenment is should be permanent. Yeah. Then would that mean that emotional states would not arise and but what if one uh, encounters a situation when when one has uh, a right to be angry or a righteous anger or 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 a need to uh, you see an injustice and and you become angry and want to do something about it with an enlightened being uh, not have that arise or would it be maybe perhaps they would describe that as a wrathful uh, anger <laughs> or, or a, a wise wrathful anger like in the Tibetan Buddhist. Yeah, well, I, it's funny because as you were asking the question, I was thinking, uh, I had these contrasts in my mind of like <clears throat> early, but what we call early Buddhism. Early Buddhism means the, the earliest Buddhism that we can reach. Um, so through um, careful studies, we can, we can understand what the, the Buddhist community was teaching about 100 years after the Buddha's death. That's as early as we can go. But we can be really quite clear, uh, not 100%, but really quite clear through comparative analysis of differing sources, especially the, the most important are the Chinese Agamas and the Pali Suttas, but there's fragments of early Buddhist texts in other languages. Um, oh, where was I going with that? Oh yeah, so, so let's call that early Buddhism. And then in Tibetan Buddhism, so the, what enlightenment would look like in, 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 in early Buddhism versus Tibetan Buddhism is somewhat different. So yes, in Tibetan Buddhism, they're actually, um, they're conscious of the earlier ideal, <clears throat> but they're taking a different approach of transmutation. Um, so, you know, the, 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 the Vajra, the, the, do you know this mm. symbol? Dorje, yes. it's called in Tibetan. Um, so that's the, representing the five poisons, the five, um, the, well, they're all negative emotions except for ignorance, I suppose. Um, mm. But, um, you know, um, lust, aversion, whatever, blah, blah, blah. And then on the other side, you have the five wisdoms and the little ball in the middle is, represents emptiness. So kind of through emptiness, you transmute the one into the other. And in a way, it's not even transmutation, it's the fundamental energy you could say or the fundamental quality of the five poisons is the five wisdoms so um anger i think would be called mirror-like wisdom Uh, so when it arises unobscured uh, undistorted through our craziness then it is this kind of uh, mirror-like wisdom and it can bring great clarity you know so 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 that anger in its sort of pure undefiled state um, could arise and you can act on that uh, in the Tibetan view. But I think the Tibetans might also consider that compassion may not ever perhaps be, be absent from an action. So for example, one of my friends recounts uh, when he was a child that he was casually crossing the road when he was quite small and his father was really angry with him 
um, and told him not to. And he recounts this um, as a positive incident and that he knew that his father loved him. And he really took that seriously like, because his father was so angry and he has a good relationship with his father. So he, he took that seriously and um, it really helped him. So, you know, there are these useful cases for anger. Um, and I'd say the fundamental, how do you say, function of anger, I would say is basically saying no. You know, so if someone's, let's say, hassling you, and you say, no, don't do that. Mm. And, but they, they don't stop. So, you, hey, no. And, and as the no is not heard, it builds up and up. We see this in Black Lives Matter movement. Um, it builds up and up and up until it's like, well, nothing else is working. So now you have this um, response, this appropriate response of using anger, which is a very loud no. So it's not that, in my view, which might be contrary to early Buddhism, but in my view, there's nothing fundamentally wrong with anger. Um, but on the other hand, um, imagine if there were a person who never got angry, but could still say no. You know? uh, I can imagine that. I mean, can you, can you imagine one of your friends, for example, trying to draw boundaries with you and, and you know, not, not allowing certain things or, you know, not, not letting themselves be taken advantage of, but without resorting to anger. Could you imagine that? <laughs> I imagine uh, something like um, in back, way back in the, what was it, 70s or 80s? Uh -huh. Maybe. Uh, there was this, TV show <coughs> called uh, Kung Fu. <laughs> okay. With David Carradine. Oh yeah, and, right, right. As Clyde Tanking, and 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 he seemed to not get angry, but he was able to use uh, kind of like a like use their energy and, and turn it around against them to throw them down. <laughs> imagine uh, <laughs> yeah. a master like that that's enlightened would be able to uh, instead of try to oppose uh, with anger, they would kind of, kind of uh, guide them along and maybe throw them on the ground. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, yeah, so even, you could back. even, in theory, you know, you could even punch someone in the face without being angry. Just, just supposing oh, that yeah. you had such clarity that um, someone's in front of you and for, for whatever reason, for whatever circumstances, you see clearly Oh, the best thing to do now for this person and for this situation would be to punch them in the face. Hmm. Who knows? Maybe they're really drunk and they're trying to rape someone and they're not listening to reason because they're drunk. I don't know. Or we could think of a million different circumstances. So you might love the person, really wish them well. Of course, you also wish the person who's in trouble well, but in, in this respect, actually, it's not that there's one person's in trouble, one person's causing trouble. They're both in trouble. One person is going to be harmed and the other one is going to harm. If you're going to harm someone, you are in trouble. You know, that's not good for you. That's not good for the world. Therefore, it's trouble. So out of love for that person and the whole, you could punch them in the face. But without 
feeling, oh, yeah, I want to hurt you. It's like, no, I don't want to hurt you. I want to punch you. You know, I want to stop you by punching you. Um, but I fundamentally want you to be happy. So that's a very different intention. And, and it's a very different experience as well for the person. If you're, if you're experiencing negative emotions, that is a state of suffering. But that's why we use the word negative. This is not just a Buddhist word. It's a, from uh, neuroscience, you have positive and negative affect. But what Buddhism doesn't address is uh, fully anyway, is uh, there's three kinds of affect homeostatic, sensory, and emotional. And we can have, you know, homeostatic affect, for example, the feeling like you need to pee or feeling extremely thirsty. The sensory affects in pleasant or unpleasant feelings. The Buddha died of painful, bloody diarrhea, for example. Um, he had a chronic bad back th through his teaching career. So he experienced pain as a kind of suffering but he had transcended um, emotional pain. So that's what he meant by dukkha, according to my analysis. Oh, man. So, so is it possible to imagine a, a Buddha or Bodhisattva or someone highly trained that has, has conquered or, or does, or instead of suppressing anger, it just doesn't arise. Or, or maybe if if it if he needs anger, like to stop someone from causing harm, maybe it does intentionally allow it to arise in order to take action. Because maybe anger does you know. In, does provide energy for the body uh, to, to, to do it does have some physiological uh, advantages yeah so maybe there are uh, cases where when the these energy from anger could be used if, if, if well if we're taking the tibetan likely. if we're taking the tibetan route then yeah it wouldn't be about i mean in in some of their training they, they would regard training as being a little bit hierarchical. So in the kind of top levels like Dzogchen and Mahamudra, there, there, there should be no suppression. Whereas in, uh, you, we're now, I'm now seeing your belly on the main screen. Maybe you want the other one on the main screen. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, but I can see you twice, right? There's two cameras. Oh, there, there you are. <laughs> Oh, what was it? Turn on. Hmm. <laughs> oh, I know. Oh, oh, uh, one. The other one. Turn off the the video huh? of that one. That looks better. And if you <laughs> click on your face, wait. I don't know. I I now see your photo as the main thing. Oh, maybe I can press it. What do I do? But, but oh, there it is. I press it and now I can see you. Oh, yeah. I didn't realize I could control that. There, there's another version of me. <laughs> Let's see. If I no, I've got the live version now. <laughs> so we're saying in Tibetan Buddhism. Um, yeah, so at the top levels, there's no suppression. But you only even, traditionally, you only even train in the top levels. After uh, very extensive training in the lower levels, 
So you've got a kind of re- ultimate and even in terms of you, you know, we talk about like ultimate reality and relative reality. So as um, Lewis was saying, uh, karma is the realm of relative reality um, action. It's, there's duality there. And in most of the training, ethical training and so on, we're training from a dualistic perspective. There's right, there's wrong, there's good, there's bad, um, or skillful and unskillful. Um, uh, and from the non-dual perspective, there, there's none of that. Uh, you know, you want to, uh, so you want no suppression. You want to see everything as it is directly. Um, but the sequence is important because if you, if you go straight to non-dual levels, you may end up like some Agori Babas. There's some kinds of Hindu, what could we say, priests kind of sadhus. Um, who they have also very, uh, or at least the ones that I've spent time with in India, they had, you know, quite fair non-dual views, but they were not well established in compassionate action. So they sometimes took everything's the same to mean, or do do what we want. Um, and it's only really safe to do what we want if we've reconditioned the mind first so that we're habituated in a foundation of compassion. Because then what you want is <laughs> good. And so then if you do what you want, it's no problem. See what I mean? Um, oh. So, so in, in, these, in this Tibetan system, in, in terms of anger, you wouldn't have to, su- once you're properly trained, you don't have to suppress anger, but you do have to make sure that as it arises, you don't smear it with shit, let's say, you know, which would be to involve um, how do you say? What's that word? To involve bias, for example, to involve bias with, with your anger, to to fortify uh, the misconception of self and other that would totally make anger dirty. You know? But if you're, if you maintain yourself in um, the, let's say, realization of non-self, of non-separateness, interconnectedness, um, and don't engage with your patterns of wanting to bring good inside and push bad outside, then your anger might, might go okay, it might be smooth. Um, but it's such a difficult and refined thing and to get right that it's much safer to take kind of lower levels of, of training and lower levels of view in which we think, okay, let's actually suppress certain actions. Like if these actions are gonna harm, then don't do them. You know, it's a bit more simplistic in a way, but uh, it's generally safer. Let's see if I, if I can paraphrase what you said. Sure. So you're saying that, that if, if one jumps into, um, into the, the more advanced practices and mm-hmm. And doesn't uh, go through uh, perhaps uh, practices that that train uh, good habits that that are 
that that tend to get you to function uh, well and, and ethically mm -hmm. by by habit, then if if you don't if you don't aren't grounded in that, then maybe it, if you do the advanced practice that that uh, might involve uh, allowing anger to happen, then mm -hmm. the anger might be because you're selfishly angry and, and and it may cause you to take advantage of others and there, yeah, or harm others yeah there's and plenty of there's plenty of teachers who are like into non-dual stuff and this is not even to speak of students but even to speak of teachers uh, who are giving non-dual teachings while they're sexually abusing their mm. students or physically abusing their students or verbally abusing their students. They think, oh, but I'm enlightened or, oh, I'm <laughs> so non-dual. You know, I, and even, you know, I gave that example of hitting someone for uh, their own sake. And we can understand that logically. But when it comes to putting that into practice, then you get people who think, oh, yeah, I'm there. I can see everything. Like uh, Sogyal, one famous Tibetan teacher mm -hmm. who, caused so much pain and suffering. Um, he even punched a nun in the stomach, I think. So when you have idiots who think that oh, their actions are non-dual, therefore they're so high, it's just a total mess. Um, mm. And what you said was interesting about you know, compassion and gaining habitual compassion and so on. Yes, in a way, that's what I was meaning. But in another way, we could look from a different perspective. Because if we could just skip to seeing everything as it really is, I think our action would, would be perfect. Wow. Uh, there, there would be no problem. But it's like, it's all, until we are, are enlightened, we are on the path somewhere. So if we try and jump onto the path too high, uh, taking on non-dual view, right? And then thinking, okay, don't, don't suppress our actions as well. We're trying to do that, but we still have a lot of ignorance and bad habits remaining, right? So they're gonna have an effect, at least slightly, but probably largely. So, even if you're really, even if you're, you've got some fair degree of non-dual perception and so on, these tendencies are gonna leak in, right? So, um, habit, giving yourself strong, compassionate tendencies can help protect that, they can help, um, if you're more habituated for t being compassionate, then the smaller, weaker, selfish tendencies may be overpowered. Um, but in another way, you don't necessarily even have to build up any habits. If you simply remove all of the tendencies, it's going to automatically be compassionate. So in a way, it's more about, well, not necessarily more, you can take the approach of training in habitual compassion, but you can get the same result also by training in removing obscurations. Does that make sense? Removing 
the distorted patterns, removing the uh, misperceived self-other duality, um, and yeah, things like that. Let's see. So you're saying, or or I heard, or I or I could uh, say, uh, and I found something interesting, like removing the tendency. Mm -hmm. If if I remove the tendency to be angry, then I don't need to to be mindful of my anger because it's not there. But if I still have anger, then I need to be mindful of it and catch catch it before it 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 expresses itself. And then when I catch that it's about to happen, then uh, apply some maybe opponent force and yeah and, these are uh, and intellectually uh say oh i'm um i should do this instead and 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 that that takes a lot of work and not simply mindfulness but that's part of it but discipline and 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 just uh yes being in that case being having a, a judgmental mindfulness being be being able to uh yeah like train my mind like like i would train a little dog or whatever like so mindfulness should be judgmental i think you asked about mindfulness in the last conversation with the other folk and mm. we never really got to your question um was it involving something around judgment yes because um i was watching a a video yesterday and and they they were suggesting that that this one uh buddhist uh teachings and school was was saying that they they are saying that 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 uh the the way they teach mindfulness is does involve judging kind of like like in the in the style of shantideva that that you're that you're constantly watching and 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 catching faults and all this is like mm -hmm. a monk would uh, with all these rules and but but with this mindfulness uh or they try to show that the definition of mindfulness maybe it's it's by way of of the mindfulness movement that is saying that, and maybe it's maybe it's a part of Zen too. That, that you're just uh, watching what's going on in the mind and 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 being present and and not to uh, uh, get attached to your thoughts. Just let them go after a while. And maybe that's a mindfulness meditation, and maybe that's a a, a, a Zen kind of just sitting meditation mm -hmm. so there shouldn't be any judgment because if you're judging then who's to say uh what's right or wrong then then you're then you have to have a hierarchy and all this and and so if if a, a school is teaching mindfulness in that way then then maybe they're they're being uh i don't know uh hierarchical or something or or who who are they to judge and and they're they're controlling their 
their students and, and they're programming in, in a certain way. So if I went to the, a music teacher <laughs> and then if I asked the question, who are they to judge? Then I would think, well, I hope there's someone suitable to judge because they're the teacher. If I want to learn from them, then I damn well hope they're in a good position to judge. You know what I mean? So, um, I think there, I think some kind of hierarchy is good. Like if, if we would think that, um, anyone who calls himself a Buddhist, um, has an equally valid interpretation of Buddhism as, as anyone else. I think that doesn't make any sense. It, it doesn't make sense in any field, really, does it? Like if I were, you know, I would trust certain people more than others to fix my car. If I had a car, I don't have a car. But you know what I mean? It's not like everyone has equal judgment on specialist fields. Does that make sense? Yes, and and going back to um, the tendencies, like so, my is it tendency or or whatever it is to to do something like anger or some other uh, mm. emotion with a Buddha not have those emotions and then you mentioned that that, that those emotions are are by seeing things as they really are then then that that uh, eliminates them somehow or okay so let's say Let's say um, if I fancy a girl and then she likes someone else and then naturally jealousy might arise, right? Now, if you really see the whole universe, not, I shouldn't say the whole universe, but if you see reality as it is, how is that going to upset you that that person likes someone else? Like, I don't mean seeing the little fabricated world of Justin, where I imagine that I deserve that person or that she somehow belonged to me because I fancied her or that, oh, that person shouldn't have that girl or, you know, some kind of stupidity like that. If we remove ourselves from all that stupidity and see this creature, that creature, that creature, oh, that creature is becoming happy, spending time with the other person. How is that going to, if I see that, how is that going to make these uncomfortable emotions arise? How is that going to make me jealous? Why, why would, if I really see reality as it is, why would I think that reality is wrong? Because jealousy is a really, in a way, you can say it's like a judgment that reality is wrong. Reality should not be as it is. Reality should be different in a way that benefits me more, right? But if you see that reality is actually not like that, then that emotion doesn't arise, right? 
if if you see reality into would that seeing reality be intellectual or or just um maybe more direct than that you know if you if you or even let's say even let's take it to emotional level if you feel content and you have a feeling that reality is perfect right the reality is what it is and it can only be what it is then how can jealousy arise? But how that uh, direct experience mm-hmm. and sensation that would have to arise and other uh, feelings not what if they arise? How could that uh, direct experience of reality overcome the experience of jealousy that is Well, how, how does jealousy illogical? arise? How does jealousy arise? You see, so what triggers our emotions? Um, some, for some people, the word socialism may trigger all sorts of emotions in them, right? The emotions may have nothing to do with the meaning of the word, but they may have to do with a whole load of systems they've got going on. They've got, it's almost like they've got a super highway that with a, with a button at one side, socialism, and then it (laughs) lights up all these things like, Oh, they're going to take our guns or, Oh, I don't know, whatever things that might, might occur. Um, or, you know, we all have different triggers. We have many, many triggers. So it's not, we're not just talking about how emotions naturally arise. It's how they're triggered. So if you, if certain beliefs are removed, um, I don't know, let's say, I don't know, let's say someone's racist and then they become not racist. Uh, there, there's a really nice documentary about the the black guy who made friends with KKK people. I can't remember his name. I wonder if you saw that. Mm, really, nice. really nice Heard guy. He's quite, quite a big guy. And um, he would just keep being friendly to them. And um, so many of them became his friends. And he, he would listen to them. He wouldn't, you know, shout at them or anything really nice and uh, uh, many of them over over the years many many of them gave them gave him their robes and, and left the kkk so he's got like a he's a black guy with a whole collection of kkk robes. <laughs> it, well worth seeing documentary why was i saying that oh yeah yeah so just imagine a white person who hates black people so much right then when they see black people they have certain emotions triggered in them right and it's not just like a bio, it's, it's not a biological thing at all. There's a biological component, which is the emotion, but then there's the cognitive component, which is the learned association of black people with the triggering of these emotions. Now, when the beliefs have disintegrated, for example, through a friendship with a black person, then um, it m- might take a little time because you're basically rearranging the brain. Um, but 
uh, once the racism is gone um, and the realization, or sometimes it can happen actually quite quickly. Sometimes, you know, even just through spending a day with uh, someone, you might dramatically just disintegrate a lot of your preconceptions that you had that were not evidence-based. And now you have the direct experience, it's just they're gone. And because they're gone, all, it's like the, the, you've catastrophically destroyed a lot of the um, connections. So then now you might see a black person, you might feel joy or you might feel um, relief or say relief from the loss of your racism or you might feel any kinds of things. So do you see what I mean? So there's certain patternings in our mind will change our response system. <laughs> so, but um, so what does a Buddhist uh, student and practitioner do to overcome uh, those things uh, like this he this he or she has to go over them and look at them intellectually mm. and say, okay, in order for me to become a Buddha, I have to eliminate my racism and my this and my that and it, and then ha uh, form a strategy and then... There are different ways in this, like a, a... Or is there a practice yeah. just being mindful all day long that would eliminate it? A simple practice. Uh, that doesn't require uh well the buddha's mm. simple practice was jhana these deeply absorbed states of concentration um that will take the conversation into a little bit of a different direction but I, I would say there are many strategies that we can use and many of them are suitable to be used in conjunction with each other um but the the buddha's way the buddha's primary way was accessing very special brain states. Um, and you have to slow the mind down a lot and you have to unify your attention. Um, mindfulness, the root of the word mindfulness is, uh, means remember. So mindfulness actually means, um, similar to what the English remembering means, it means holding in mind. When we remember something, we, we put our awareness on, for example, a past event or whatever we're remembering, and we hold that in mind. And what, as we're holding that in mind, that's called remembering, right? And similarly in Pali, sati is to remember. But um, in the Buddhist context, it's not just about holding memories in mind, it's about holding anything in mind. So for example, um, Buddhanusati, uh, mindfulness of the Buddha or mindfulness of the, the Buddha's qualities. Or you could have the uh, mindfulness of death or um, anupa, Anupanasati, uh, or Sati, I shouldn't say Sati, um, mindfulness of the breath. So you're, in the case of mindfulness of the breath, for example, you're basically remembering the breath in mm. the present or you're or what, what mindfulness is doing, it is making you remember what you're meant to be doing. So let's say now you're sitting and you're mm. dreaming about pizza. What mindfulness does is it brings you 
back to the object. Um, and it's not the only quality you should have, it's one, one of several. Um, oh, we're going with this. And right mindfulness. There's, there's right mindfulness, there's wrong mindfulness. That doesn't just mean to remember anything or to hold anything in mind. It's to hold in mind that which is conducive to enlightenment. So if you hold in mind your hatred for a particular political party, whatever that is, and then that's increasing the negative emotional affects inside you with no benefit, then that is not right mindfulness. It's mindfulness of something, but it's not right mindfulness of something. Mm -hmm. So um, this is all interesting. Hmm. Yeah, so because the, I, ha I have, I, I, I've been watching different viewpoints of different Buddhists and, and then, and also a, maybe a psychotherapist that is being critical of, of a Tibetan Buddhist and in, in a school in particular, because uh, uh, she's saying that, that they're, uh, well, well, you can see the, uh, the teachings coming from like Shanti Devas, uh, Bodhisattvacharya, and things like that. Bodhisattvacharya. It's, it's so completely different from Western uh, psychology that, well, mod modern pop psychology that is, you, you want to express your, your emotions, your angers, you, you don't want to suppress them. And then there's this term that, that they, someone came out called spiritual bypassing that they're, they're saying that is, is harmful because, because in, in spiritual uh, disciplines that maybe they're, they're suppressing this anger for, for, uh, for discipline purposes. Yeah, there's so this that could be causing problems. Well, I'll tell you what, any, any, any psychotherapist that I could imagine suppresses their emotions. For example, if they have a client and they're bored of that client, they're not going to say, oh, I'm really bored of you. Or if they're afraid, they're not going to always say, they're not going to usually say, I'm afraid of you. Or if they think, oh, you're so uneducated and, oh my God, I think you're a disgusting person. They're not going to say that. It's not going to serve the person. It's not going to help them. There's some, some special cases, let's say, you know, you might, you might say, oh, I'm fine. You, you might reflect, oh, I'm, I'm feeling quite irritated by you. And I'm, I'm curious if, um, do you find people in your life sometimes feel irritated with you? Because, you know, it might be, inter it might be very useful information that, me as a therapist, I'm feeling irritated with that person. It might be something that's not just about me. It might be something that happens. And you could explore that useful in a useful mm. way. But generally, yeah, you, there's a lot of suppression going on. In any normal human interaction, there's a lot of mm. suppression going on. And that, that is, has evolved as a function of social animals. Mm. Um, okay. So then it's a question of balance. You know, how much of that is healthy and how much of that is not. And I would say sometimes in Asia, there is an unhealthy amount of suppression. Mm. Um, that it's, well, Confucian values, for example, would 
you know, favor social harmony over individual um, comfort, maybe. And mm. that, that can become quite extreme. And you can have, you know, loads of suicides in Japan, for example, that is not disconnected from this topic. Um, on the other hand, maybe America can sometimes seem like the opposite extreme. You know, so much into uh, individual American dream. What is the American dream? I don't know. Well, like get rich or something. I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> but um, so there's, you know, some balance between all about the individual and all about society. Um, and then, you know, that, that we could all hope to embody. Um, but even, even on an internal level, okay, how much do we suppress or not? I think it's got to come to what's useful. And mm. I, think, I think actually psychotherapy has a lot to offer Buddhism. And mm. that, uh, there are many um, elements of psychotherapy that are more efficient at certain things um, than traditional Buddhist practice. So for you, you, we talked about these patterns of anger and so on and how to overcome them. And I said there are many different ways and some can be used simultaneously. Well, some of the um, psychotherapeutic ways of working with patterning is particularly useful because in, in meditation practice, there's work that cannot be done in psychotherapy and, and levels of the mind that one has to go to that, that one cannot do while one is interacting, you know, to, to unify the mind, to calm the mind to certain states is literally impossible while even while walking alone <laughs> in the forest you know you have to totally mm. retreat into the mind but but there's certain and there's other lighter meditation practices we might do that might involve some contemplation or compassion or imagining other beings and so on which is kind of slightly more interactional even though you're not interacting but mm -hmm. but when you're in relation that's when some of our patterning arises that doesn't simply doesn't arise when you're by yourself and you can have long-term meditators who can have big issues with many people um and get so angry i remember one one very nice friend of mine um was uh, so upset that someone else had been allowed to build a retreat cabin near to this person's retreat cabin she was so angry um, and it was interestingly ironic. It's like, oh, someone else has the opportunity to do intensive retreat. That's maybe something to rejoice. But, you know, so, so, <laughs> so um, how, somebody else skillful enough being there in an appropriately holding environment um, where these things can be processed in relation can can really help remove some of our obscurations remove some of our patterning bring awareness to what's going on oh i never noticed that sequence i never noticed that when that happens and that happens then i keep doing this thing or i keep feeling this way or i keep blaming it on whatever it is you know so so definitely i would not exclude modern psychotherapy yes i'm i'm interested in that topic too uh, psychotherapy and and trying to learn about yeah the uh, what what is it called death psychology and Carl Jung okay. and things like that 
I would a, I would pay special attention to emotion based psychotherapy. It's not like a one school. It's like a genre, emotion centered. Uh, like yeah, you know, because it can't just be about the thinking, the the cognitive side. Um, if you really bring people into emotional work in the present moment with mindful awareness and so on, um, it can be very, 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 very useful. Yeah. Hmm. The, yes, there's this uh, audio book that I picked up that talks about emotions and 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 the uh, and right now I'm, uh, well, I, I haven't listened to it in a while, but uh, but I gathered that that our that we ourselves don't aren't aren't very good at figuring out personally what emotions we're having. Like 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 there's so many descriptive words for different kinds of emotions, but when right. people are given tests, like even traditional psychological tests, or mm -hmm. maybe that they're shown uh, pictures of of faces and, and you're supposed to tell them what what they're having what and things like that yeah. and and they, they they traditionally felt that yeah this is universal but now that they're, they're discovering that wait a minute maybe it's more culturally influenced than we thought so so the so Some, this yeah. on emotions is kind of uh investigating in into emotions more to to understand it better you know who i'd really recommend as a part of that research if you're interested is yak pangsep uh, he wrote a book um he wrote more than one but there's he co-authored a book called uh the archaeology of mind oh. and he founded the field of affective neuroscience um, wow. So he's looking at emotions from a kind of evolutionary perspective, which I find particularly interesting. Sometimes when we look at human emotions, um, people, I've seen a lot of people kind of generate models of emotions or classifying them, including Buddhism, you know, mm -hmm. classifying emotions and w what family they belong to and what's this and that. And then, and they, but it's, it's almost as if they've created their model first and then looked at the data or, or looked at a lot of hazy data, hazy human data, and then tried to make their models. And their models are, of course, culturally biased as well. Mm. But so I like Yark's um, work because it's really grounded in science. Um, and he's saying there are, I can't remember if it's seven maybe, so far that we know of, I think it's seven, um, discrete uh, emotional pathways that are common to all mammals. And they are not learned, they are hardwired in the brain. Wow. It doesn't mean all emotions are hardwired because a lot of what we call emotions are quite complex phenomena of different emotions interacting and you've also got cognitive elements interacting with them to produce very differentiated experiences. But at a more fundamental level, it'd be very interesting to look into those seven um, emotions. Hmm. Archaeology of mind, I highly recommend it.
Wow. Oh, and one of them is like joyful play, which is lovely to be. I, I was thinking about was the book How Emotions Are Made by Lisa Feldman Barrett. I have to listen to it. The Secret Life of the Brain. The Origin of Feeling. That sounds interesting. <laughs> the Myth of Universal Emotions. That, that's the, where she explains that, that psychologists uh, and and those that they give out tests to people to see to kind of uh, gauge what their patients are feeling that they they've come up with standardized tests and, and so and right. she's saying that the, those tests have some flaws to them and so she, she's talking about the myth of those supposedly universal emotions that maybe oh. more culturally based and, and more I wonder if she probably covers um Daniel Gold was it Daniel Goldman is that his name no yeah, or maybe I'm getting muddled up there's a guy who made like the atlas of emotions and he he's done oh maybe that's what she was talking about yeah he's done um a lot of work with the Dalai Lama I can't remember if it's Daniel Goldman or if it's someone else let me just check uh, the, a neuroscientist uh, he was really key in microexpressions, I think. Oh, Ekman, that's it, Paul Ekman. You know the, the series Lie to Me? Lie to Me. Yeah. Oh, I, I vaguely remember it. Uh, it was based on him. Or his, uh, mm. I think he was even a consultant. Like there were all these microexpressions and stuff in his work. Um, mm. Yeah, or he, funnily enough, he talks about, I think he talks about seven fundamental emotions as well, but they're, they're not the same as the stuff based on neuroscience. Um, yes, I yeah. do think that this, this would help uh, Buddhism and Buddhists a lot to, to understand what, uh, what's going on in the light of... Uh, the new findings in in neuroscience and psychology, but there. there I think if it helps the practice, then it's useful. Yeah, I guess you're studying that, right? You're you're studying Buddhist psychology or something like that. I did an MA in in uh, Buddhist psychotherapy. Yeah. Psychotherapy. Wow. Are, are you familiar with with this uh, English Buddhist practitioner that that? studied uh, Tibetan Buddhism and, and then when he got out of his, his uh, program of study, maybe it was in, in India or wherever and, and he didn't know what to do and he, he decided to study, I guess, psychotherapy and now he's doing psychotherapy on, on Tibetan Buddhist practitioners who, who kind of went psych, psychotic. <laughs> oh, that's good. Yeah, I <laughs> met a lot of crazy Tantra. people in he, India. <laughs> Uh, I think he wrote a book on like uh, tantra and psychotherapy or something like that. Well, that sounds interesting. Or the or the the, the something of tantra. <laughs> so, so I guess he's got uh, a lot to say about uh, how how these uh, practitioners uh, go off. <laughs> like it can be dangerous. I well, it's, it's sometimes it. I mean, sometimes they're fairly crazy before they even start. I mean. Um, especially if he was in India, like there, it does attract a certain crazy crew. I mean, not everyone, obviously. There's a lot of very, very well-grounded and 
very great people involved. Um, but, you know, around any gurus in India, you're going to find some crazy people, whether it's Buddhism or Hinduism. Or, or, mm. um, but, yeah, it, it, they're also not that well equipped. I mean, uh, one of the good things in the West now, there seems to be a tendency, at least in some circles, to always have a, some kind of a mental health professional on meditation retreats like a psychotherapist yeah. or a psychologist and that's that's really great um that's really great but it's to, to refer to this uh, sort of affective neuroscience and the buddha so i think that one of the things that the buddha was doing differently to most buddhist teachings nowadays was these uh deeply absorbed states of concentration, these jhana. And um, I see it as like bathing the mind in positive affect, bathing the brain, you could say, in, in, in positive emotional affect, like piti or sukha. Um, and, um, well, even Yak Pangsep, the neuroscientist, will, will tell us that if you strengthen positive affect systems, it weakens the negative ones and same vice versa. So for example, in depression, your negative systems can be so strengthened that it's extremely difficult to feel joy or, you know, you could even go for a walk in a beautiful park uh, and see some beautiful architecture and feel nothing. Um, so in psychotherapy from the more emotional based point of view it's important to strengthen the uh, positive affect systems um you know don't just try and focus on weakening the negative but focus on strengthening the positive and mm -hmm. the buddha seemed to be doing this to an extreme level with specific affects that generally psychologists have no idea about because they've not seen these these phenomena um but it seems that through repeatedly bathing the mind in these states, um, I think is basically re rewiring, if we can use the term wiring, uh, re rewiring your brain. It's kind of like a brain hack. Um, and I think that's kind of what he did. He kind of found a way to hack the brain to eliminate negative emotional affect. That's... Uh the what what you call affective what affective affect so the affect oh affective neuroscience or huh? affect affective you, or affect neuroscience um i'm not sure what you're asking me uh, the the this the school of the branch of study is affective neuroscience mm. So affect, so emotions are an affect. We've got like three different kinds of affect, um, at least. And you can think of affect meaning like feelings, right? Mm. So there's like the cognitive side and then the feeling side, the affective side of our minds. I see the mind as basically in these two, two divisions, two, two categories. We've got the cognitive, which is like all language, all maths, the sense of a timeline, you know, past, present, future. Um, the, this is all like cognitive side. 
and then you've got the feeling side and and the cognitive side comes later evolutionarily uh, and which is why the emotional side being more core is essential to work at with um, therapy or with meditation because you can fix this but it's only going to be superficial if you just just fix the cognitive it's only going to be superficial you know um and you can you like what is it cognitive behavioral therapy cbt mm -hmm. um you can do a fair amount of change just with that cognitive regulation but um this is the root the feelings are really the root you need both so there's a there's a buddha rewired that that core part of the brain yeah you think yeah mm. so i mean don't, don't, that that might sound depending on who's listening that might sound strange to rewire the fundamental part of the brain that sounds impossible but if you if you know anyone who's experienced depression and has come out of depression that is an example of rewiring the brain well in fact just being normal state and going into depression that's also an example of rewiring the brain i'm using wiring in a very sort of symbolic sense but um so we know that the brain can change we know that the you know your uh what used to bring you joy can simply not have any effect on you anymore um or vice versa or you might fall in love and now everything's feeling amazing so these are all you know and some are more short term some are more long term um but for someone who's been experiencing chronic depression for 20 years let's say and then suddenly they come out of that that's a really radical shift so maybe similar is if we come from our present state and rewire it to a state where we're actually content all the time it doesn't mean there's no emotional change but you know you have a, a felt experience that the world is fine the world is fine in the in the highest sense it's a fine world um yeah mm. kind of bliss really Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, I, I go on forever with you. Yeah, I, yeah. I guess we could stop. I was trying to find uh, a, a book that I mentioned online. Uh -huh. <laughs> I, I guess I thought I had it on Kindle, but I guess I have it physical version. <laughs> I, I have have to uh, uh, convert my physical version to Kindle version and uh -huh. sell off the physical version so I can have them all on 
if you're interested in archaeology of the mind and you you can't find it i could help you i may have a copy i could lend you archaeology of the mind archaeology of the mind yeah yak pangsep's work uh he, he he's he's my yeah of, of of all this topic at least from the western side his work is probably my favorite you might like Eugene Gendlin as well. Um, there's something called focusing. He's a really cool guy. He did some kind of meta-analysis, I think, of different kinds of psychotherapy um, to find... Because every school of psychotherapy has clients who, who has a lot of clients who don't have any benefit. So he's like, well, what he was trying trying to find something in common with the people who had benefit from psychotherapy. And he found it in his research, you know, I think he concluded it didn't, it didn't really matter which school of psychotherapy they were attending. It was what they were doing with their mind. And so he, he um, kind of developed this system of how to do what, is being done by the people who are actually getting benefit and they call it focusing. And it's quite, you were talking about how emotions, like we don't even know what to call our emotions or something. But he's actually going really deep into emotional work and going into the feelings and bringing up, like finding a word that could possibly capture that feeling, which could be quite obscure words even. And then searching for that. I don't know. Anyway, it's a little complicated to explain, but, um, if you looked up focusing, well, maybe I can write in this message. If you, if it's again one of the, one of I think one of the more important developments in psychotherapy. Uh, Eugene, I might not spell that right. Do you see the message? Do you see? Eugene Gendlin. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, he's really good. That's my guess of how his name is spelled. But Google oh. will help. I might well, be I found something focusing. Yeah. Um, I think you'd like it. Focusing by Eugene. Eugene T. Gambler. Yeah. I found it one on eBay and one. And some other audiobooks. Mm -hmm. So, Jairo, I think I'm going to get on with some work here now. Okay, thank That's you very good. much. Yeah, thank you. Nobody That's else showed up, but it was a good conversation. Yeah, interesting um, topics. Nirvana and, <laughs> and how to train the mind and, how, and the emotions. How to see you done that. <laughs> uh, I hope to see you again next. Maybe that's Saturday. Yeah, cool, cool. Sometime. Mm. You message me on. So I'm more likely to see a message than uh, 
And being tagged on a comment if you do want me to join. Mm, like your messenger? Yeah, if you send, if, like today I saw it because you replied to 